Welcome to Catch the Fire Toronto's weekly sermon podcast. This message was recorded live at Catch the Fire Church in Toronto, Canada. We hope you enjoy it. If you weren't here, forgive me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of pick up something that I didn't, wasn't able to get to uh, over the past couple of days, but um, we were talking about last night when people go to do ministry and um, you know, we were talking about the seven sons of Sceva and how that God used these failures, these guys who failed at an effort to spark a mighty revival. And he loves doing that. And uh, so for many years, uh, I and my oldest son were, and we had these incredible stories. We were on the quest to raise the dead. We'd actually gotten a prophetic uh, word here uh, back in, uh, I think it was in 97. I had a prophetic word that, you know, you're going to see the dead raised, you're going to pray. And then when I was back here again in 2010, one of the students at the school gave this uh, same thing. And they said, they, they, and they practically prophesied, somebody's going to like die in your ministry and you're going to raise them from the dead. And I was like, you know, it's immediately you start going, I hope it's not a family member type of thing, you know, when that kind of thing happens. But we were, I was in a meeting uh, about in 2015 where a, a gentleman and this, this little church in Inglewhite, England, a little village that had never, they never had a documented healing in the village or in the vicinity. And it's, out of, it's outside of Preston, England. And so the pastor had asked me, it was just a little congregational church, and then the pastor had asked me to come speak there. And I mean, the whole town was like only 175 people, the whole village. And we had over 200 people packed in this church that would only seat 150. But thank God they were skinny English people, not 150 people like me. Otherwise, we would have never fed in, fit in there, never fat in there. That would have been a better way to say it, actually. Um, but it, we were all crammed in this church. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the meeting, this woman jumps up and begins to scream out, my son, my son. And right beside her, uh, I don't know, I, I, don't, I, I didn't ask Jacob if we, get, if we have the pictures. Do we have the pictures of that or just the video? I don't know if we have the pictures that were from that. But this, uh, the gentleman with the gray shirt and the black collar, this is the person that happened to. The gentleman behind him in the glasses, uh, all the people that are actually in this picture are, are kind of important kind of uh, to this story. But the gentleman in the glasses behind, he's uh, actually an MD. And he just so happens was right behind the guy when this happened. But the mother starts screaming, help, help my son. And, and uh, the gentleman that was there was sitting there. His hands were clenched like this. His eyes were bugged and he was looking. And, it looked, and I thought immediately, I thought, man, he's having like a seizure. And so, uh, but I saw as I went to step off the stage to go and pray for him, I saw this dark cloud over him. And immediately I was like, oh, no. Because I had this uh, association with that as a demonic cloud, as a demonic presence that was coming over him. It wasn't anything in the natural, just something in the spirit. And sure enough, as I stepped down, this guy immediately starts getting worse and worse. He's not breathing. He's turning purple. He starts off really red. He starts turning purple. And uh, we start praying. And with every prayer, it gets worse and worse and worse. 
And so uh, it, it, it was even to the point where several thoughts hit, it's probably better if we don't pray. This, probably, this guy may not make it if we keep praying. And then all of a sudden I looked at the doctor and I said, could we lay him flat? And he said, well, the only thing is we got to keep his head up so he doesn't swallow his tongue, you know, because that could kill him. And so we laid him on the ground. And I was doing that because in, I had had 23, pray, I've prayed for 23 people to be raised from the dead. Let me point out, 23 people are dead. None of them got raised from the dead. Let me just make sure to make that really clear and be very honest with you. There are 23 miserable failures of attempts of praying for somebody to be raised from the dead. None of them successful. But I had, I had learned a lot in doing that. And so I was going to put my chest across his, pray for him, because I don't believe that that scripture means that you got to go toe to toe and nose to nose, but at least cross the chest. And I really believe there's like an impartation of life that occurs. Anyway, I start, I'm getting him in that position to do it. And as soon as we lay him down, all of a sudden he goes into the death rattle. And if you've ever heard that sound, you'll never forget it. And I, being a police chaplain, and I became a police chaplain to get proximity to dead people, to raise somebody from the dead, honestly, I, selfish motive on my part, totally. Everybody's like, oh, you're such a servant to the community. I'm like, I want to get all the dead people. I'm going to raise the dead. And so all of a sudden, he goes into the death rattle, and he's turning, his lips are blue-black. And in his head turns towards us, and when he does, his eyes lose focus, his pupils dilate, which is an immediate sign of being brain dead. And this huge amount of fluid pours out of his mouth, and the doctor looks up and says, it's too late, he's gone. And I remember standing up and the doctor's starting to try to clear the space and get prepared to try to do resuscitation and all. He never got a chance to do that. But I stood up and all of a sudden I'm looking and this sinking feeling comes over me. This dark, heavy weighted sinking feeling and all the faces of all the people that I had prayed for to be raised from the dead, none of which had been raised from the dead, start flashing in my mind's eye. And I just start hearing in my ear, you didn't have enough then, you don't have enough now and you never will. And then all of a sudden, I went, you're scared. You're not only scared, you're terrified. Not me, little Lucy. And you're scared because of what's about to happen. And you're trying to project that fear onto me to keep me away from a massive breakthrough that's going to see this man be raised from the dead. And then I just lunged forward, and as I did, as I began to lunge forward, the doctor turns and starts to push me away, and I said, no, this man will rise. Well, don't, I'm not going to tell the story. I'm going to let an eyewitness tell the story so you can see what happened. Go ahead, roll that video. Come on over, Pat. So you saw something incredible happen last year. Would you share with the good folk here what you saw? Morning, church. It's really exciting to be here this morning. Come on over, Pat. So you saw something incredible happen last year. Would you share with the good folk here what you saw? Morning, church. It's really exciting to be here this morning. Um, over a year ago now, um, Robbie came to um, a little village church in Inglewhite in Lancashire, 
um, where I have the privilege of being in leadership. On the first night of, this, uh, uh, of the service that he took, we had an awesome worship time, a bit like this morning, it was great. Um, just after the worship finished, there was a man on my right-hand side who started screaming out, um, and his mother said, he's dying, he's dying, please come and help, please come and help. Now, there was a doctor nearby and a nurse nearby. Robbie came off the stage and began to minister. I watched this man slowly dying. He turned blue all over and he stopped breathing. I heard the doctor say, he's gone, at which point his mother was screaming, he's dead, he's dead, it's too late. But Robbie spoke life into him. You could hear in the heavenlies, because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and rulers of wickedness in high places. Robbie took authority and began to pray life into this dead body. And I saw with my own eyes this man that was dead on the floor suddenly begin to rise up. Glory to God. <laughs> um, and, they, they then carried him back to the back of the church. But I knew that night that a war had been won in the heavenlies and a power broken. And I just want to say as encouragement to you today, you know, God came to heal the sick, to raise the dead and to set captives free. I'm 68 year old and I am just beginning as from a Christian of nine year old, seeing these things in reality happen. But as John Wimber said, there's more. And faith, spelled R-I-S-K. So I encourage you all just to step out wherever you're going in faith and see God glorified even more. Man, when I saw this guy start to breathe, I was like, because he all of a sudden just... Isn't that amazing? You. I mean, he's like... And I'm like... I mean, it was like, I was like, whoa, it totally scared me. It totally took me off guard and set me back. But the thing I want to tell you is in those moments, don't trust your feelings. Your feelings will lie to you. Trust what you know God can do and what the power and the authority that Christ has placed inside you. Trust that and not what you're feeling in the moment because every feeling I was feeling was impossible and not enough. And just shrug those off. Those are those vipers that latch on. Shrug those off. Take a look, and I'm going to try to do this as quickly as possible. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. If not, just read along. And I'm going to try to jump into this really, really quick. One day, Jesus is preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And great crowds press in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge. For the fishermen had left them, and they were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push out into the water. So he sat in the boat, and he taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now, let's go out where it's deeper, let down your nets, and let's catch some fish. All right? This is what the text says. But I want you to give me a little bit of grace to sort of exegete the passage a little bit and sort of expound on the passage and sort of build into the passage. Will you do that? Because, listen... How many of you know Luke is writing this like 75, 85 years later? He's not writing it in real time. It's one of the synoptics, but he's not writing it in real time, right? So how many of you ladies know men skip details? 
If you know a man, you know men skip details. It's just right on the back of our man card that says must skip details. You know what I mean? It's just what we do. And so I want you to pretend that Luke skipped a few details and you're going to allow me to fill those details in. Will you do that? All right. Two people nodded. They are the representatives of all of you. And I'm taking their word for it. So here you have, you know, Peter and his crew. How long have they been fishing? All night. How much fish have they caught? Zero, no fish. How many of you know fishermen without fish are not nice people to be around? You know, so you can imagine here, Peter, he's upset, he's irritated. Jesus is over. Now, Jesus is preaching at the shore. Whenever you're speaking publicly, you have to get a distance from your crowd, especially if you don't have a sound system, because otherwise they can't hear you. Well, they're pushing in, people, bodies absorb sound. So they're pushing in, and so he's got to get distance. He can't get any further out without getting wet. And so he looks over and you can see Peter is over there and they're cleaning their nets. They're putting their nets away. They've been fishing all night long. And I imagine that it looks something like this. I imagine Peter is over there and he's like, get that seaweed out of those nets. Is that breechwood? Get that out of there. Is that a Coke can? Get it out of there. I can't believe people are throwing their bicycle tires in this lake. Don't they know we got a fish in this lake? I got to go home to the wife. She's going to say, where's the money? Where's the fish? And I'm going to say, we don't have any money. We don't have any fish. And my mother-in-law lives with us. <laughs> you know, no matter where I tell that part of the story, everybody laughs all over the world, it seems to work. And I got to go back and she's going to say, I told you you should have married Barnabas. He's an accountant. He's bringing home a paycheck. I hate this job. Now, about that time, Jesus is trying to get the distance, and he turns over, and he looks at Peter, and he goes, hey, Peter, would you lend me your boat? <laughs> I can imagine Peter turns and says, you know what? You can have the stupid boat. I hate these boats. I hate these nets. I hate this job. Right now, I'd sell it on eBay if it was here but I just want to chop it up and sell it as firewood. Yes, please take the boat. And Jesus is like, dude, I only want to borrow your boat. So Jesus steps in and right about the time he finishes up his message, right about the time they get the nets perfectly clean. They're hanging them up to dry in the nice Middle Eastern sun. They're grabbing their lunch pails. They're heading home. As they're walking away, Jesus wraps up his message and he goes, hey, Peter, I've got an idea. Let's go fishing. <laughs> Have you ever thought about this? I imagine Peter's like, you're not from around here, are you? Maybe you're not aware of this, but fish are cold-blooded creatures. Whenever that sun comes up, do you see that yellow disc in the sky? That's called the sun. In winter, you people here don't know what that is. But anyway... In Texas, we do. But anyway, so he's like, they try to get at night, they go up to the surface, but when that's out, they go down. You know nothing about fishing. You should go build an armoire. But then Peter says something absolutely profound. He says, but because you say so, we will. Don't forget that. Because you say so, we will. Now, what about Peter's crew? I can imagine him going, okay, guys, come on. And they're like, no, Peter, we're not. Are you serious? 
We've been fishing all night. We're tired. We didn't catch anything. We need to go sleep and eat so we can come back and do it all again tomorrow night. No, Peter, we're not. And he's like, oh, please, please. maybe he'll give us a tip or something. Something to get my mother-in-law off my back. Come on, just get in the boat. And he coaxes them back into the boat. Well, what about all the other fishermen crews at shore? And they're seeing them get in the boat and going out, and they're like, hey, Peter, <laughs> what are you doing? Are you going fishing? Hey, look at crazy Peter. He's taking fishing tips from the carpenter who now thinks he's a rabbi. <laughs> crazy Peter, he's lost his mind. As Peter does the row of shame out to the middle of the lake. <laughs> and then he gets out there. And he looks at Jesus and he goes, okay, Jesus. Clearly, you just want to see what fishing looks like. You just want a fishing demonstration. So here's what it looks like. We take the nets that are supposed to be nice and dry, but are still wet because they haven't dried out yet. And you throw it over the edge of the boat and you wait for fish. May I point out that are not there. We proved that all night last night. You better give me a tip. And then Jesus looks at him and he goes, Peter. I know what's wrong. You see, you have your net on the wrong side of the boat. It's simple. If you pick your net up from this side of the boat and you put it over on that side of the boat, <laughs> you catch fish. And Peter's like, really? Really? Jesus, let me get this. You think six eight feet over. There are fish lying under the brim of the water going, <laughs> they have their net on the wrong side. They think we're over there, but we're over here. <sighs> They'll never know. Trust me, Jesus, that's not happening. But because you say so, we will. And the crew's like, Peter, don't you do it. Don't you do it. The whole fishing, the, all those other boats are back. We will be the laughing stock of the fishing industry. And he's like, oh, they're laughing anyway. Let's just get it over with. They start pulling their nets up and walking to the other side. What about those crews? Hey, Peter, what are you doing? You, you, you think there's fish on the other side? Hey, look at crazy Peter. He has lost his mind. He thinks there's fish on the other side of the boat. And Peter's like, I don't. I really don't. But he throws his net over to the other side and he says, look, see, I told you there's no fish. We got fish. Pull those nets up. They pull it up. They're full of fish. Drop them in the boat. He throws it over again. They fill up again. He's like, pull the net up. They pull it up. They drop it up. Throw it over again. He's like, oh, they were under there all night. We were on the wrong side of the boat all night long. <laughs> the boat is so full of fish. That it's sinking all the way. Peter realizes, I got another boat back there. And he's like, hey, get that boat out of here. We got fish. Not that side of the boat. 
other side, that's where we fish from here on out. All the other crews are like, crazy Peter was right. Get the boats, get the nets, let's all get out there. Scripture says, both boats so full of fish that they barely make it back to shore, sinking the entire way. Peter gets back to shore and he jumps out of the boat. And the scripture says he drops to his knees in front of Jesus. And he realizes this isn't about the technique. This isn't about the side of the boat. This is about the presence that was in the boat. The presence in the boat changed everything. And Peter jumps out and he drops to his knees and he goes, Jesus, you need to go away from me. I'm too bad. You're too good. Somebody as good as you shouldn't be this close to somebody as bad as I am. Yeah, Jesus, the best thing you could do right now is just go away. You shouldn't hang around with a guy like me. You hang around with a guy like me, I'll, I'll disappoint you. I disappoint everybody. Yeah, Jesus, you should just go right now. And Jesus looks and he goes, oh, Peter, you don't get it. You spent your whole life chasing minnows. But I made you for the big catch. I made you to catch people. And you've spent your whole life chasing these little fish. Those little fish can mean different things to different ones of us. Maybe it's dollars. Maybe it's popularity or fame or acceptance of family. We're just chasing little minnows. But Jesus says, I made you for the big catch. And he looks at Peter and he says, hey, Peter, follow me. Have you noticed there's not much of a pitch in that? Follow me. There's not much there. It's not like, you know, people who influence people are studying that going, how does that work? Nobody's studying that. Follow me, that's it. And yet Jesus, in saying that to Peter, Peter abandons the boats, the nets, the fish. Peter had probably been crying out to God all night long the night before for those fish. And he just walks away from them to follow Jesus. He just walks away. Matthew, what did Matthew want? Money. Jesus comes up to him, probably with a table filled with cash and says, hey, Matthew, follow me. And the Bible says Matthew deserts his table to follow him. Can you imagine these guys walking past their family members? Excuse me, where are you going? 
following him. To do what? He didn't say. For how long? He didn't say that either. Then why are you doing this? Because everything inside of me says, I have to have that presence in my life. You see, that boat represented Peter's life. And when Jesus said, lend me your boat, he's saying, Peter, you let me put my presence on you? We'll do far more than you could ever do. We'll catch far more than you could ever catch. You just let me put my presence on your life. Will you lend him your boat? Will you lend him your boat when it doesn't make sense? You know, I've learned a long time ago, God doesn't seem to owe it to me to make sense. You ever notice that? But I owe him everything. Will you lend him your boat when it can mean your life? One day in our church in Aurora, Illinois, I shared this the other night, the largest gang in the Chicagoland is the Latin Kings. And they were ruling the city. This is several years before the transformation of our city took place. And the number two guy in the Latin Kings, his street name was Hitler. His girlfriend started coming to our church and they lived together. They even had a child together. And uh, she started coming to our church and every year I'd do a two-part talk on sex. And I explain what sex is. Sex is God's blessing on marriage. Best sex is always in marriage. Sex outside of marriage is sin. Bible clearly defines marriage as between a man and a woman. Anything outside of that and anything outside of marriage is sin. And it breaks God's heart because he wants you to have the best sex there is. And I'd take two weeks of breaking that down and explaining that and going into a lot more detail than I am here. But I got up and I started sharing that. And so... Hitler's girlfriend came to the first, the week one of that. There was a two-part series. And so she goes back home and she tells Hitler, I'm not having sex with you anymore. Because Robbie said, sex outside of marriage is sin and it breaks God's heart and I'm not going to do that. So I'm not having sex with you anymore. You can imagine his response. This warm feeling comes over him. He looks up, tears begin to flow down his face. And he says, I love Robbie. We're going to do whatever that man of God says. <sighs> that's my fantasy of how he responded, but that's not how he responded at all. He looks at her and he goes, you go tell that preacher, I'm coming to that church next Sunday and I'm sitting on the front row. And if he doesn't get up and take it back and say he's wrong, I'm going to pop him in the head in front of the whole church. She calls on the phone and she's crying and she's like, Robbie, you can't get up and do part two. You can't get up next week. She said, have Carlos Lopez, the worship pastor, get up and do it instead. And I'm like, that's your plan. He gets popped in the head instead of me. That's a horrible plan. And she goes, yeah, but he had come out of that gang and maybe he won't be so harsh with him. Maybe. And I'm like, no, we're not going to do that. I said, he's not even going to show up. I said, he's mad. I said, but you do what Jesus says no matter what. And we trust what Jesus says. It doesn't matter if it makes sense or doesn't make sense. We follow that and God takes care of everything. And you just follow what Jesus says. And I said, he's not even going to show up. She goes, oh, he will. And I said, nah, he won't. She goes, he will. I hung up the phone. 
Next Sunday, I'm in my office kind of pulling notes together for part two. And all of a sudden, I hear these running up the steps and boom, the door flies open and it's Carlos. And he's like, dude, that's like saying pastor in our community. He's like, dude, he's like, you'll never believe who just walks through the front door. And I was like, who? And he goes, Hitler. He said, he's here and he's strapping. He's has a concealed weapon. He's got a gun hiding, strapping. Anyway, and I was like, you saw the weapon? And he's like, yeah. He goes, it's tucked right behind his shirt, right up under his belt in the back of his pants. And I said, you definitely saw the weapon? He goes, yeah. And I was like, okay, okay. I said, here's what we're going to do. I said, tell the girl who was supposed to do announcements. She's not doing announcements. I'm going to do them instead. And he goes, you want to do worship too? And I was like, no. (laughs) You're doing worship. I'll preach. I'll do announcements. And he's like, okay, okay. He goes, I really feel you should do worship. And I'm like, no, you're doing worship. So we go back downstairs. And so I wish I could say that I was like fearless and bold, but I'm like, we're so happy to have everybody at church today. And I'm moving really fast because I'm like, man, if he's going to take a shot, he better be quick. I'm like, bathrooms are over here. Children's minutes, coffee and donuts. Man, it looked like a Wimbledon match. I was jumping all over that stage because I wasn't going to make it easy for him. But he sat right there and he just looks and his head's cocked to the side like this and his eyes never move. His head never moves. He just sits there. And I look and I was watching the whole time and I finished part two, didn't change, didn't even did a recap of part one. And we went into ministry and all of a sudden he goes, and he looks around and he just gets up and he just walks out quietly. And I'm like, what happened? She calls me later that day. She didn't show up because she was scared. And she calls later that day and she goes, what happened? I said, nothing. I told her, I said, he just sat there. And she goes, really? He never made a move? He didn't do anything? And I said, did he come home? She goes, yeah. I said, what did he say when he came out? He goes, that church is stupid. They are so weird. I'm never going back there ever again. And she's like, nothing happened? I said, no. Several weeks passed. And the uh, Aurora PD, along with the Chicago PD, did a big arrest, and they arrested 21 of the top Latin King game members. We have a picture for you from the Chicago Tribune. This was the front page of the Chicago Tribune of all the Latin Kings leaders that were in Aurora. When you see that slash go across down the guy's eyes on the very the second from the bottom down there, that's Hitler. And so... I went, his brother, his street name is Pistol Pete, and he went to our church. He's a drug dealer. And I went to him and I said, I said, hey, I said, Pedro, I said, you go tell Hitler I'm coming to see him in jail this week. And he goes, Robbie, I don't think he, I don't think he wants to talk to you. He goes, he doesn't want to see you. And I said, I said, dude, you tell him I'm coming to see him. He goes, well, they're in isolation. I can't get word to him. I said, dude, don't lie to me. I said, you tell him I'm coming to see him. He said, okay, I will. And so I showed up there that Wednesday And I walked in, I've never seen anybody so angry in my entire life. He came in the room and he's shackled and his hands are cuffed and he's got the orange jumpsuit on. He came in and he looks at me and he goes, what do you want? And I said, well, I want to talk to you. And he goes, well, I got a question for you. And I said, what's that? And he goes, what did you do to me that day I came to your church? And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, you did something to me and you know it. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I didn't do anything to it. He goes, I was going to bop you in the head. And he goes, as soon as I sat in that chair, I was frozen and I couldn't move. He goes, did you hex me? 
And I was like, no, I didn't hex you. I said, Pedro, you don't, I said, you don't understand, Hitler. I said, this is how God works. I said, it's like this is the life that you've made for yourself. And you think it's the perfect life. And it's been filled with crime and drugs and been filled with violence. And I said, you think it's the perfect life. I said, but it's actually turned out to be jacked up and twisted and broken. And I said, and here's the life Jesus always intended for you to have. But you've settled for the jacked up, twisted life. I said, Hitler, I've come to tell you. And I was just using basic street terms. He would understand. I said, Jesus is here to make a deal with you. And he's putting a deal on the table. And he's offering a deal that he'll take the jacked up, twisted life. And he'll give you the life you were always born to live. The one you were meant to live. I said, that's the deal Jesus has on the table for you, Hitler. Will you take the deal? He shoves away from the table and he goes, that deal's not for me. He goes, that deal's for people like you and Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. He goes, Robbie, they've got me charged, you know, with six murders. He goes, they don't even know the half of who I've killed. He later confessed to me that he killed 18 people. And he looked at me and he goes, Robbie, he goes, I've tied men up and I've tied their wrists to the steering wheels of their car and I've tied them up and I've soaked them in gas and lit them on fire and I've looked through the window and laughed at them as they begged me for their lives. And I laughed as they died. He goes, you don't understand. I've gone too far. That deal's not for me. And I said, oh, Hitler, you don't understand how Jesus works. I said, Hitler, this is called the Bible. I said, we call this the holy word of God. I said, Hitler, half of this was written. Half of this right here, this portion is the New Testament. And half of it was written by a murderer who was murdering Jesus' very own people. And he chose him to write what we read as his holy words today. I said, oh, Hitler, don't you see that deal is still on the table? And with that, he slammed his hand on the table and he burst into tears and he said, I'll take the deal. And right there, I prayed with him and I saw this cold, hard murderer give his life to Jesus. Through his tears and his suit, his brother later told me, he goes, you saw Hitler cry? And I said, yes. He said, Robbie, I've never seen my brother cry. He said, even when I'd watched my stepdad beat him till he was half dead, he goes, I never saw him shed one tear. A matter of fact, the only time I ever saw him laugh was when he was torturing people. And he goes, you saw him cry? And I said, oh, bro, you're gonna love the rest of this story. As soon as we were done praying and he gave his life to Christ, he lifted his head through his tears and this huge smile came across his face. And man, it was like right out of the book, Pilgrim's Progress. He rolls his shoulders and he goes, it's gone. He says, it's gone. It's all gone. And I said, what's gone, Hitler? He goes, the anger, the hatred, the rage. He said, it was like this massive rock strapped to my back. And he goes, as soon as I prayed that, it just snapped right off and it's all gone. I can't believe it's gone. And about that time, the guard comes in and says, all right, time to go back to your cell. And he jumped up and saluted him. He goes, yes, sir. And the guard's like, whoa. And he looked at me and I was like, 
I would go back every week and we would go through scripture and we would talk about you do what Jesus says no matter what. No matter if it makes sense, no matter if you don't understand, because he just so happens to be smarter than we are. And he would look at these, I, he couldn't even read. I had to buy him a children's picture Bible. And he would look at these goofy little pictures and we were talking about the story of Joseph. And he looks up at me and he goes, Robbie. And I said, yeah. He goes, I got to get my story out. And I looked at him, I said, what do you mean, Hitler? And he goes, Robbie, people out there don't know how far Jesus will go for them. They don't know how far they will go. And he goes, Robbie, I don't think anyone's telling them how far Jesus will go for them. That you could hate the guy who comes and tells you the greatest news. You could want to kill him. And yet Jesus will send that guy to tell you who you're really meant to be and who God meant for you to be. He said, Robbie, people out there don't know. And I really don't think anyone's telling them. And I said, Hitler, I love you. But dude, if you get your story out, I said, that could get you the needle or that could get you popped by the kings. And I said, bro, I, I don't want you to die. You know what he said to me? He held up that little children's picture Bible and he said, you told me they all died for this. He said, you told me this was worth giving everything for. Now you're trying to tell me I should try to save my own skin. He said, Robbie, the past few months in this stinking rotten jail have been the best months of my entire life. If they give me the needle tomorrow, it'll be worth it. He goes, people out there don't know how far Jesus will go. And he goes, I really don't think anybody's telling them. And I was like, bro, you get it. Oh, that we, the church, would get it the way Hitler gets it. Will you lend him your boat? You see, those boats and those nets and those fish, that was a prophetic sign. That was a prophetic act that would later be fulfilled. It was a prophetic action that would later be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Just like when Peter threw his nets on the other side and the fish came running, they came responding to the presence. Just like that, on the day of Pentecost, thousands came forward. Will you lend him your boat? Will you lend him your boat when it can mean your life? Will you lend him your boat when it can mean your reputation? Oh, my friends, with everything inside of us, you see, what did Peter want? Fish. Fish. What did Jesus give him? Fish. What did Jesus want? Because you say so, we will. Jesus is saying, I can build a church on that that will go through thousands of years of persecution and will never be stopped. Just simply because you say so, we will. Father, I pray that with all of our hearts and lives, we would respond to you and say, Lord, just fill these boats. 
that everyone could experience and encounter your presence. And with every opportunity, just respond. Because you say so, we will. We hope you encounter God and were inspired by this message today. To watch video of this message and other messages from Catch the Fire in Toronto, visit catchthefire.tv. Catch the Fire has churches, schools, events, missions and media all around the world. To find out more, visit catchthefire.com.